You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Welcome everybody once more. You mind if I stand today? Here we go. All right. This month, as you can see, we'll be looking at what the prophets, poets, priests, and kings of the Christian scriptures and maybe even from our culture have to say about what Christmas means and why it makes us sing. We'll begin today looking at the prophets. We'll begin in Isaiah chapter 8. It's going to be on the screen. I'll be your scripture reader. Here we go. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam to the land, and when they're famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they'll look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's the reading of God's word as people today said. Amen. Yeah, if, he, if you are like our family, the Stevens family, or like a lot of families across the U.S. and really across the world, you have some sort of Advent calendar. How many here know what an Advent calendar is? Okay, great. Most of you don't, so I'm going to explain it to you real quick. First service didn't either. It's crazy. All right. You're nervous when I ask you a question. It's all good. Hey, if you're unfamiliar, an Advent calendar is a type of calendar. It generally begins on December one. It moves up through December 25th, and it has a little door or like some windows or a little pouch that behind the door window or inside the pouch reveals something, typically like a symbol that relates to Christmas somehow, a light or a wreath or or a candle. Or more recently with Advent calendars, maybe you've seen these, if you're one of the lucky kids in a lucky family who's got a cool mom, not like the normal moms, but the cool mom, yes, Your Advent calendar that year, this year, had a little chocolate behind the door for you to get. And sure, you know, if you got one of those and you had siblings, you'd have to share. But, you know, some chocolate some of the time is better than no chocolate none of the time. Yes, that's true. And, of course, Advent calendars, you may have seen this now, have become like this fascinating cultural touchstone thing. Even our secular culture has embraced these. And now what was once An exclusively Christian conception, I mean, they are called Advent calendars, referring to the birth of Christ at Christmas. Now they've become something else. And I did a bit of research and found a few examples. Here you go. There is now a Lego Advent 
calendar for you to purchase. But let's not stop there. We've also found a Super Mario <laughs> Advent calendar. There he is. And my favorite one I found, the Dad Jokes Advent <laughs> calendar. Yeah. There you go. That one is tremendous. I don't write it. I just read it. It just <laughs> writes itself. And don't hear me complaining. Just hear me noticing. I think it's maybe a little strange, okay? But the point of all of these is to take you somehow, some way from December 1 to Christmas Day, from the first chocolate to the last Lego. So if you want one, it's cool. Go get one. But here's my question. Where does Christmas really begin? Where does it begin? Does it begin December 1? Does it begin on Black Friday, you know, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday? Where does the Advent season begin for anyone who's wanting to know what Christmas is all about? One man living a long time ago, some would call him a prophet, I would. And this man, a Hebrew prophet, he saw that Christmas What would come to be called Christmas didn't begin on December 1 or Black Friday or really any other day. Instead, this man named Isaiah saw that Christmas began not on a day, but somewhere else entirely. Because Isaiah, we're going to see today, Isaiah, in his own way, he sort of opened up the doors of the first kind of Advent calendar. It was a message given to him by God. Isaiah opened up those doors and saw darkness. He saw darkness. He saw what would become Christmas began in a dark, dark place. And here's why. Here's why. In Isaiah's time, Israel had, the nation of Israel had, a special relationship with the one true God. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of that into the promised land. And Israel had made a covenant with God saying, you'll be our God, we'll be your people, we'll follow you, we'll honor you, we'll love you and keep the terms of your law. But as the nation of Israel grew and as the nation prospered, they began to look up and began to say, look what we've done. Look at how we've won our wars. We've won our our battles. Look at what we have accomplished. Who is the Lord? And why should we obey him? And so God raised up some people called prophets who were like covenant watchdogs, covenant watchers, and they watched over the covenant and called the people back to keep the terms of their promise they had made. But sometimes, sometimes as a covenant watcher, life got really hard, and life had gotten really hard here for Isaiah. Because Isaiah had said yes to being God's covenant watcher, God would sometimes ask some difficult things of him. For example, when Isaiah and his wife would have children because the the people weren't listening, God said, you've got to name your son this. And so God said, Isaiah, here's what your son's name is going to be. It's going to be carried off like plunder. So Isaiah and his wife named their son carried off like plunder to show the people their future. You can imagine this child's therapy bills later in life. All right. But then Isaiah was also beginning to fear for his own life. He was receiving death threats because he was calling his nation to live holy lives and stop sinning with their bodies. And he, because he called them to live just lives and to stop neglecting the poor. And in, in the middle of all the immorality on one hand or injustice on the other, Isaiah looked up and he said, in chapter 8, he said, God, our land 
It's pretty dark. It's dark for me. It's dark for my children. It's dark for our nation. And God said to him, Isaiah, you're right. But let me show you how bad it's going to get. How dark it's going to get. It's darker than you think. God said, Isaiah, let me show you where is all this is going to go. So God gave Isaiah this message to give his people at the end of chapter 8. And it's a message that's now become connected with Christmas. Let's see why. God begins like this. He says, Israel, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? So here God begins by pleading with his people, why are you looking to everyone but me for help? Hmm? Why are you going to mediums, spiritists, the internet? Uh Uh-oh, news media, shopping, oh, looking to every kind of answer but me. Why are you looking to dead things to try to help you help living people? God goes on, verse 21, distressed and hungry, they'll roam through the land. And when they're famished, they'll become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What's this talking about? I've got a friend, brilliant friend, always nice to have brilliant friends. His name is Greg, Dr. Greg, actually, and Dr. Greg is a counselor, and he's a theologian, and he teaches on overcoming fear and anxiety, and he said something that was revolutionary for me personally. I want to share it with you. He said that sin, all sin, all the ways we sin, all the ways that we we do wrong, all the ways we maybe take it out on our kids or our spouses or our friends, all the times we cheat on our taxes or whatever. Those are all, he said, anxiety-based solutions to some problem that we have. We're afraid of something, uh, so we use some action or some choice to solve our problem. Uh, Like, for example, we're afraid we won't have enough money, or God's not going to provide, or our business won't be number one in the media. So we cheat on our taxes, or we cook the books. But the real issue is, and here's what he said, he said, today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. Isn't that good? Today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. Would you say that with me? Today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. In other words, you solved your problem today, but tomorrow it's going to be worse. Like, you know, you solved your, your money issue today, but tomorrow you're being investigated by the IRS. Yeah, your, your child quiets down for a moment, but maybe later you got to heal something in them that was broken. Today's solution becomes tomorrow's problems when you try to solve your own problems apart from, Dr. Greg said, God's way of peace, God's way of non-anxiety from a motive of love. Now you make things worse. You can go again from like the little darkness of greed to the utter darkness of your company's bankruptcy. You can go a little bit from the, the small darkness, it seems, of lust to the utter darkness of a failed relationship or marriage. You can go from the little darkness of fear into the utter darkness of isolation because you can't and won't distrust anyone. See, God's showing Isaiah the true cycle of the human condition. You know this, that people on their own drift, people on their own fall away, people on their own go down. They're afraid. We're afraid. So we consult whatever, medium, spiritist, but it only makes it worse before Isaiah ever saw 
where Christmas would become, God showed him where Christmas began. It began in utter darkness. And here now in chapter 8, whoo, the nation of Israel has a crucial choice to make. Here's their choice. Will they? They had to ask themselves, will we repent and trust God and come out of our darkness? Or will today's anxiety-based solution become tomorrow's problem? And Isaiah saw them reach up and reach down, put their hands back down on the earth, try to solve their own problems their own way. And that's when his heart broke. And that's what Isaiah saw. He saw God show him the light go out in his land. He saw utter darkness. And maybe, maybe this is you today in some way. I mean, this can be some of us at any time. Maybe you, maybe you feel trapped in like the same kind of cycle of darkness. Maybe your marriage, you feel like, oh, it's trapped in just this cycle of darkness. Today's solutions have become today's now. Yesterday's solutions have become today's problems. Maybe you feel like your business is trapped in a cycle of darkness. You feel like you're, you're trapped in a nation, a land full of darkness. Maybe the, the way things have gone at work for you this year make you feel trapped in darkness like the light is going out in your life or child or family. You feel darkness in your soul, darkness in your land. What can be done? One of my favorite parts in, you guessed it, Lord of the Rings. Yes, going through it again. You're welcome. Uh, it's near the end of the second book, The Two Towers. And if you've seen the movie, you read the book. Frodo and Sam, the heroes, are lost in a dark land. They're in a dark place called Mordor. And they've been unknowingly led to the lair of a horrible spider. And it's so dark in this place, in this dark tunnel that they're in. They, they begin to despair if they're ever going to actually be able to see again. But in this moment, they remember that hero, the, uh, Frodo, had been given a gift many weeks before by someone named Galadriel, a beautiful queen. And this was a, a glass file, like a little jar that held inside it the brilliant light of a sacred star. And here's how the story goes. It says, as the spider drew near, Sam cried out, Master, Master. And life and urgency came back into his voice. The lady's gift, the star glass, a light to you in dark places, she said it was to be, the star glass. The star glass, muttered Frodo, as one out of sleep, hardly comprehending. Why, yes, why had I forgotten it? And isn't this just, don't we forget the light we have? Yeah. A light when all other lights go out and now indeed light alone can help us. And maybe today, maybe today in your life, maybe in your child's life, you feel like, man, light alone can help me and it can. And here's why. Because thankfully, gratefully, Amazingly, light is what Isaiah got. Now he sees this in chapter 9. In chapter 8, there's darkness. But now chapter the 9, it says, nevertheless. Oh, don't you love nevertheless in the Christian scriptures? Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past. He humbled this land, that land. In the future, he'll honor Galilee, the place no one would think he would honor. Beyond the Jordan, verse 2. To people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. The light has dawned. So Isaiah here, he sees a light. Oh, but it's a specific kind of light. Verse 2 tells us two things about that one light. First, Isaiah sees that this light is awesome. It's awesome because he calls it not just a light, but a great light. This word in Hebrew means like an intense light, a blazing light. And unmistakable, you can't miss it, 
Danny DeVito plus Chevy Chase on your roof doing your Christmas light display for the whole neighborhood center of the universe. Light display. And this light, this blazing light, will be seen by who? It says, it says by these people. The people walking in darkness. And who? Who were the people walking in darkness? Oh, the people of chapter 8. They were buried in darkness. Heads are down. Hands are down in the earth trying to find solutions to their problems with their own resources. What does this mean? It means, I love this, that God was telling them then and you and me today that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how you may seem stuck or feel stuck or how dark it is in your life today, you can't have a light in the darkness. You can't have a light when all other lights go out. Because let me tell you this, and you know this is true, at some point all other lights will go out in your life they just will all other lights will fail you your body's going to fail you your mind may fail you your family may fail you if for no other reason than they pass away or you pass away every other light will go out but Isaiah is seeing a light coming on when all other lights have gone out and he's saying it's awesome and here's what's so awesome about it what's so awesome about this light is that this light is For the very people walking in darkness, who are walking in the fruit of all their bad choices, in the consequence of all their anxiety-based solutions, it isn't for the good people who think they've got it all together in life. It's not for the rich people who think they can pay their own electric bills, so to speak. Not for the people who think they've got the right job or skin color or connections. No, this light is for those trapped in darkness with no way out. It's from a God, you see, of sheer grace. But this light, oh, it's not just awesome. The light that comes from God is also awful. Awful, not just awesome, but awful. You say, how can God's light be awful? Look here at the second half of verse two. It says, on those living in a land of darkness, the light is dawn. So notice, notice here where the light comes from. It doesn't come from inside people, right? Not inside your Disney make a wish upon a star, follow your heart. You can never be wrong. Kind of hard, right? Not inside your will. It's not an inner light like the Beatles sang. Not coming from inside your mind. The light comes not from inside, but from outside. The light dawns, this is saying, not within them, but upon them. And this is the awful sounding message of the light God wants to bring into your life and the world. It means this, oh, that you and I don't have the means within ourselves to save ourselves. We don't have the means within ourselves to save ourselves. And I know this is kind of hard to hear, but we don't like this today any more than the people who was in Isaiah's world like to hear. They didn't like to hear it either. But this is the unpopular, I think, but true message of the light of Christmas. As much as the light is uplifting, it's also insulting to us but 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 if we turn off the light because we're insulted we also switch off our source of hope and heat about a hundred years ago in the u.s you may know this a bit from history uh churches in the u.s were being massively pressured to you know by our culture to cut out certain parts of the bible this was happening in these parts the culture said at the time certain parts of the bible are unbelievably offensive they're ridiculous no one can believe them anymore like you seem backwards if you believe them regressive if you believe them and if you believe them guess what no one they said is going to come to your churches and your faith is going to die so you've got to cut out the parts and the passages that give us trouble in the culture and if you do that 
we'll quit ridiculing you in our universities and on the campuses and in our magazines and media and movies. And many churches did, many denominations did this, many cut out specifically the supernatural parts of the Bible, of the Christian scriptures. The parts about miracles and healings, bread multiplying, somebody walking on the water. Because a hundred years ago, our culture said, well, we have science now. And science, of course we love science. But science, they said, it's proven that miracles can and don't exist. And you're backwards if you believe they do. So take the supernatural bits out and we can all get along. And your churches will be fine because you'll show, hey, you're with the times. And many churches historically, we know this, did just that. And as a result, those same churches and denominations that did that, tragically, sadly, are the ones who are dying or dead today. Why? Because they cut off the light of God's word to them. But around the world today, do you know where the Christian faith is growing the fastest? It's overtaken the birth rate. It's spreading so fast in parts of South America, Africa, and even China that researchers cannot keep up with it. And do you know what kind of Christianity they practice? It's one that believes in miracles, embraces the supernatural, and trusts for those things to happen in their midst. See, far from dying, like critics 100 years ago said, that brand, sorry to use the word brand, that type of Christianity is thriving and is the fastest growing. And so when our culture today, in the same way, presses back on you and me and us to drop certain bits they find offensive or backwards or regressive, or too hard to believe now, and they say, if you drop these parts, we'll be nice to you and let you alone, I think we should be super careful. Be super careful. I mean, after all, when was the last time you read an article uh, saying Christianity is too hard to believe because of the miracles in there? Like what offends us the most is the supernatural. No, you don't read those anymore. That's not our cultural pressure point. We struggle now with other things, let me give you one example. I was on a university campus last month with a friend, and I was speaking there uh, that day. I got to speak to a young man who was an atheist, open about it. He was very kind, great conversation. But just to pr prove my point, when I shared with him a story about a literal, observable, eyewitness miracle that happened to me in my life, I'm the person standing in front of him, and described it, I finished the story, and he shrugged. He shrugged. Uh, he didn't debate me, didn't get offended. He just said, and I quote, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice. So, I, you know, I followed up I, and I asked him, I say, listen, as an atheist, I, yourself, I would be interested to know how you process that. Like when you hear a story about someone who claims to have seen or experienced a literal, provable, relatively speaking, miracle, like how do you process that? He looked at me and he said, oh, that's easy. You have your truth. I have mine. You have your truth. I have mine. So I followed up and I pressed him and I said, well, you know, Jesus claims he was actually the one truth for all peoples. All people, including for you in your life. Well, that's when he reacted. He got real agitated and started to, you know, get grouchy about it. The point is the supernatural didn't offend him. Yeah. Hmm? And he's a science major. No, Jesus' claim that he was Lord of his life, wanted to be Lord of his life, and Jesus could only save him. He couldn't save himself. That's what got him offended. My point is, we love the beauty of the light, the brilliance of the light, the miracles, the love, the feels. Oh, they're great. But buried in the brilliance is a kind of an insult, which is this. What can save us and bring us out of darkness doesn't come from within. 
but only from without. The light dawns upon you. And here now is what Isaiah saw. He saw that the light took shape and took form. And let me set up that scripture like this. E. Stanley Jones, you may know the name. He was a Methodist missionary to India in the early 1900s. And Dr. Jones uh, responded to all the darkness he saw in India, in that culture formed by a faith that said the supernatural uh, is really impersonal. God or gods don't really care about you. Uh, That, uh, you know, where you were born is your lot in life. And to respond to all of that darkness, he gave this example to a group of people in his culture at the time to explain the light of Isaiah 9. He said a little thought experiment. He said, let's say there was a boy, a young boy who really missed his father. His dad was an absentee dad. Father wasn't around. And he said, let's say that lonely boy, little lonely boy, saw a picture of his father. Like he saw the face of his father on the paper. And he said, let's say that the kid said, I wish father would step out of the picture. E. Stanley Jones said this, This little boy expressed the deepest yearning of the human heart. We who have gazed upon the picture of God in nature are grateful. Like nature's nice, right? But we're not satisfied. We want our father to step out of the impersonal picture and meet us as a person. Why won't principles do? Why do we need a personal God, someone asks. Well, suppose you go to a child crying for its mother and you say, Don't cry, little child. I'm giving to you the principle of motherhood. Would the tears dry and the face light up? Hardly. The child would brush aside your principle of motherhood and cry for its mother. We all want not a principle or a picture, but a person. The Father has stepped out of the picture. That is the meaning of Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We almost gasp as the picture steps out of the frame. We did not dare dream. God was like Christ. Oh, church, but he was and he is. And Isaiah saw that Christmas would first begin in darkness, second, break in the light, and finally, he saw it would take shape and form like this. Verse 6, for to us, A child is born. Like the light has become a child. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called, you know this bit, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So what if... What if, Isaiah is saying, what if the ultimate light, the ultimate thing that brings warmth and beauty and illumination and growth and healing into the world, what if that thing broke in and the light became a person? What would that be like? What would it feel like? Oh, Isaiah is saying here, it would be like the deepest cry of the human heart come to life. Peace come to life. The most wonderful friend and counselor you could ever want come to life. Something so big and powerful and mighty come into your life. The Father you've always longed for. Stepping out of the picture and coming into your life, it would be the greatest light and hope of the human heart becoming real. It would be a light when all other lights went out. And Jesus of Nazareth is. He was born in darkness in an animal trough and crucified in darkness on a Roman cross. Oh, but the dark couldn't keep him down. He was raised back to life. And, and didn't he promise he would be? Oh, yes. He called himself, what? The light of Bethlehem alone? Israel alone? Come on, the light of the world. Yeah, the light 
has come into the darkness, the gospel writer John said, and the darkness has not overcome it. When God, when God asked a man years before even Isaiah named Abraham to believe him, to trust that God was good and loved him, was powerful, was working in the world, what did God ask Abraham to do? Come on. He asked him to go outside of his tent, look up at night in the dark, and to look at the light. God promised him a future if he would look at the light. And so I'm asking you to do the same today as God asked to Abraham, then Isaiah, then one day, yeah, some shepherds out in the field. If your heart needs help today and hope, I'm asking you to look at the light of the world. If you open up your calendar right now and like your, your year and all you see is darkness, a great light can dawn upon you. His name is Jesus. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Lord, I thank you for meeting us like you met these people. I thank you in all our lives for the great nevertheless. The great nevertheless. Walking in darkness, but nevertheless. There's a God who shines, a God who gives grace, a God who changes, a God who saves. You sent Jesus to prove it. If you're here today and you're saying, I, I need this darkness to move and be shed. I need light to break in upon me. Would you just raise your hand right now? Yeah, if there's some darkness in your life, dark situation, child, family, body, marriage, it's, it's what happens. Oh, but there's a great light that can walk into your life and dawn upon you. Would you raise your hand, right? Lord, I'm thanking you for these who have acknowledged they need your light. They need a, a breakthrough. They need a light to break upon them. Lord, I'm praying for that. They would turn to you first. We would turn to you first, not to our own solutions. To you first. Your word first. Your Holy Spirit first. And the community of God first. Would you lift and shine today? Pray for these things. I thank you for them. For meeting us here today. this season, this month, in a new way. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.